Welcome to the Speak As Well As You Think podcast brought to you by Vautier Communications. I'm your host, Jen Alex, and the goal of this show is to uncover communication strategies and behaviors that you can use to improve the way that you show up and perform at work. We'll talk about what effective communication looks like in action so that you can apply it to your own career. If you'd like a written summary of each episode, subscribe to our weekly email newsletter by visiting vautiercommunications.com. Welcome back, everyone. Thanks so much for joining us. Today, the Vautier Communications team is excited to have Jacqueline Farrington join us on our podcast. We are going to discuss effective rehearsal habits of great presenters. So Jacqueline, welcome to our show, and thanks so much for coming on. Well, good morning, and thank you for having me. We would love to start with a high-level introduction to you, what you do, and how you got here today so that our listeners have an idea of your background. So if you want to kick us off with that, that would be awesome. Sure. I am a communications leadership and change coach and consultant. So I work at the intersection of those three things. And I got here by, I was an actor in my 20s. And while I was acting, I started teaching at the Yale School of Drama. I did that for about 14 years. And while I was teaching at the School of Drama, I also started working with folks at the law school and the School of Management and recognized at that time that that was more where my my heart lay. I I wanted to work more with, with people who were not actors, loved working with actors, But I discovered in working with non-actors that they would come in after several sessions and talk about how life-altering some of these concepts, some of which we're going to talk about today, I know, some of these concepts were for them, that they had knock-on effects, not just at work, but but also in their personal relationships. And I realized, I really, this is where I want to focus my, my time. So I left Yale in 2005, started my business, and here I am today. Awesome. Yeah, we can definitely connect with that for all three of us. That's one of our favorite parts of what we do is working with people and just seeing that light bulb go off and having them switch from something that was previously very maybe anxiety driving or very stressful for them. And all of a sudden might not be their favorite thing quite yet, but they feel comfortable doing it or they feel like they have that ownership to know what to do in order to make that come across well, or have a good experience with that. So one of the things that I would love to start with, again, coming from your background here, why is practicing or rehearsing before you give a talk, a presentation, a meeting, call it whatever you want, so important? Well, if you're trying to connect with an audience and you're you're standing on stage in the moment, trying to connect your content with an audience, and you have to be thinking about the logistics of your presentation. You have to be thinking about where am I standing? When do I move? How do I use my hands? Which words do I emphasize? How do I emphasize them? And and there are many more logistics that, that your brain has to consider when you're presenting. If that's where your brain power is, that's where your focus is, it then impedes you from actually connecting with the audience, from focusing on the audience. Mm-hmm. It creates cognitive overload on your brain. You just don't have the, the brain power. The brain can't hold all of those things at one time. I, I, I'm sure you, you probably talked about this at some point on your show, but human beings love to think that we are good at multitasking and yep. we're not. 
the, the brain is hardwired to hold one to three things at any given moment in our in our working memory. And so if if you have to answer all those questions in the moment, it can result either in a stilted performance or a rambling performance where you're kind of doing what I call slinging text at people, slinging content at, at people, yep. uh, or you're not able to adapt and adjust to things that come up and things will come up. Uh, things will go wrong and, and it helps you better adjust to those things when you can be fully present in the room with your audience. Yeah, Jacqueline, I want to piggyback on that for a second because we love that aspect of multitasking. We hear from so many people really just the last three years as we've moved more remote, more virtual, more hybrid. We've had more and more of our clients say, oh, you know, I'm getting better at multitasking. And I, I smile and chuckle and nod because everyone wants to be great at, at all of those things. But we looked into it and the, the multitasking definition came from a computer's ability to run multiple programs at one time. And as much as AI continues to take over, we're not computers. And so at the end of the day, human beings have to understand and recognize we are human beings. And if we are trying to do three or four or five things at once, or as you you mentioned, putting our brain in 10 different directions, it's obvious that we're going to lack in certain cognitive spaces. And we're either going to lose our train of thought, we overthink the audience, we don't think about the audience enough. We knowledge dump, as you called it, the slinging of content. We call it word vomit, but it's when we take everything we know from upstairs in our brain, all that knowledge, and we just throw it against the wall yeah. and hope to goodness some of it sticks for our audience. But I love the the mindset of being flexible and being open to, to pivoting. I think that's so important as people understand Perfection isn't the goal, and I don't think that's realistic. And so what practice allows us to do is be aware of some of those blind spots or things that may happen in the course of a talk, a presentation, a meeting, call it whatever the, the interaction may decide to, to have. But it's about the ability to be flexible and then be willing to say, okay, this direction may not be working, or I've got a sidebar here. Let me go after it because I think this is value add for my audience. And John and Jacqueline, I love how you both go off of that. And another piece of that, I think, is the part of making it habitual. I think mm -hmm. that both of you say when we don't have to think about where we're standing, how we're producing this information, and we have that ability to pivot, like John said there, if you can make the skill portion of it, whether it's where you're standing, how you're presenting, the formatting, if you can make all of that habitual and how you want to present it is now the only thing you have to think about, you have a lot less things in that working memory, like you're saying there, Jacqueline, to actually think about. You can only think about that one thing, whereas you're now prepared with the skills, the knowledge, and the content in the back of your head from doing that rehearsal and doing that practicing, that now all you have to think about is, how does my audience actually want to listen to this piece? It's interesting that we will, if you think about playing an instrument, no one would dream about picking up the guitar and, and just start playing it. Can't do it. Doesn't happen. And even with accomplished guitarists, they have to study the music, look at the music. Then they've got to work their way through, through the music. They can't just pick up a piece of music and suddenly they're, they're brilliant at, at playing that piece of music. So it's the same thing with giving a presentation. Yep. Yep. And we, yeah. we use and the athlete aspect quite a bit too, as all three of us came from fitness backgrounds, but take an NBA player, they don't pick up a ball 
once in the off season and expect their season to go well. They are practicing every single day as if it is on time because that's how you keep that that skill set fresh. That's how you continue the habit. That's how you continue to fine tune all of the skills. But you need to have the practice there. It doesn't matter what you do, whatever you are hoping to accomplish, you're better when you have the opportunity to practice before you do it. And I wanted to also drop in there with that that a big piece is a lot of us think we are speakers because we speak normally. But when you walk into a presentation or a meeting or something of that nature, we're not at that professional level yet, unless you've gone through these presentations, these meetings numerous times in the past few weeks, months, years. If this is the first time you're going through that, you still have to think of that as an amateur speaker. Yes, you talk every day, but is it in this setting, in these large rooms with that same content in the same formality? that you're going to be going through it at that point, most likely not. And that's why that practicing or rehearsing is is so big for that skill development piece. Yeah. And one of my all-time favorite quotes from Malcolm Gladwell, practice isn't the thing you do once you're good. It's the thing you do that makes you good. And I think that's so important. As Jen said, Jacqueline mentioned, Matt mentioned, it's really carving out time and being willing and and dedicated to saying, I am going to practice. It doesn't have to be three hours at a time, right? Pick 30 minutes, five days a week, pick 30 minutes, three days a week, if that's what your schedule allows. But to Jacqueline's point on the guitar piece or a musical instrument, you don't become good by not practicing. And so in order to be effective in anything, and whether it's music, whether it's acting, whether it's speaking, whether it's sports, you have to find time to practice. And if you don't, you will not be as effective as you ultimately could be. Rehearsal sets you free. Yes. Amen. Love that. So on that note, then, Jacqueline, for you, what would you recommend for our listeners? What are the best steps to rehearsing effectively, to having that good setup so that you're not missing any important pieces and it might not necessarily be in the order that you deliver it, though it could be. But what are those steps that our listeners can put into play? Sure. I think the most important one is internalize, don't memorize. Yeah. And by that, I mean, memorization is about rote memorization. It's what we do when we memorize telephone number to make a phone call. And then we get to the telephone and we, we almost vomit the the phone number out (laughs) to dial it. Internalization is about attaching meaning and intent and emotion to the, the content So that means that we're standing up. Sometimes I have clients say, I I rehearsed a lot this week. Okay, tell me how you rehearse. Well, I I sat down and I read through it and I really thought about how I want to deliver it. Great. That's a nice first step. Yeah. But a first step. Then you need to stand up, move, speak aloud, and really think about attaching your intention to the words. How do you want to make the audience feel as you're speaking these words? What is it that you want them to be seeing, to be thinking in their their mind's eye Mm -hmm. as, as you're speaking? And it's very helpful within that then to rehearse a few times to live people. Doesn't have to be the whole presentation from top to bottom. You can break the presentation down into chapters and just do one chapter at a time. Yep. But but rehearse to live people and ask them to respond as you're rehearsing. If they're confused, ask them to tell you that they're confused. If they disagree, 
as you're rehearsing, notice uh, how they're responding, what their body language is telling you, what their expressions are telling you. And that creates, especially if you're giving a virtual presentation where you can't necessarily see your audience, that creates the reality of talking to human beings on the other side of your words. Absolutely. And one of the things we usually mention to clients too, if you don't have an audience, you always have a cell phone. Almost always. I shouldn't say always, but most people today have a cell phone that has video capabilities. Turn it on for five minutes and present to your cell phone and then watch yourself back. That way you can see your facial affect. You can see, am I coming across passionate about what I'm talking about or do I look bored with the content? Because if I look bored as the speaker, my audience is going to equally feel bored with the information itself. How am I using that vocal energy to land a point home or emphasize what's important? Am I doing something physically that might be distracting? Or maybe I'm saying something that we'll call it a non-word, a filler word, or something that's just not adding to the overall conversation. And at a certain point, five minutes in, if you hear it enough times, your audience will too, and that might become a distraction to them. And so it just gives you that ability to put yourself in your audience's shoes to say, here's what they see and hear. Am I happy with that? Or do I want to make some adjustments and pivot a little bit and, and deliver it in a different way? Don't do that too. Don't rehearse watching yourself in a mirror. That's yeah. really important. That creates self-consciousness. It, yep. it also, you start to watch yourself. Yeah as opposed to really thinking about trying to connect, trying to land these words on, on human beings. But the watching yourself in video creates detachment. And, and in fact, when I ask clients to watch themselves, I have them close their eyes before they watch that video. And I'll say, okay, you don't know this person. Mm -hmm. now, of course they know this person, but setting that frame that mindset before they watch of, I don't know this person, create, create some detachment. Yeah. Because it, we all hate watching ourselves. <laughs> it's, it's a painful exercise. It does get better the more you do it, but it yep. is a painful exercise. So that removes a little bit of the detachment or removes a little bit of the emotion from that to, to say, I don't know this person. And then force yourself to find three things, at least three things, you can find more, but at least three things that you're doing or that this person is doing that work, that if you were coaching this person, you would help them strengthen and then find no more than three things that you, if you were coaching this person, you would suggest they change. Because of course, when we watch ourselves, we come up with a list of 50 things that we don't like, Yeah, but, but take it one thing at a time. And, and then, so once you've identified your three things, then work on one of those at a time and really nail down that first thing before you move on to the second. And then you record yourself again and you go through the whole process again. And I love Jacqueline, the starting with three things that you like, three, three strengths. We call it stacking tiny wins, yep. but we're, we're all very self-conscious, but also harsh on ourselves in that review process. We don't like the way we look. We don't like the way we sound. And we often go to those things that may not be able to change. It's who we are and we should embrace that. But if you can stack some of the tiny wins and say, okay, the message was well delivered there. It made sense. Or 
you, you, you watching yourself, you did a really effective job making eye contact, or I like the way your hands work. They look natural. They look comfortable, but picking those tiny wins can help set you up and then set the mind, that framework again, that mindset shift for, okay, these are a number of things you're working well for me. Now I might just have one or two small adjustments that will end up having that profound impact on the audience. Other thing I wanted to mention, Jacqueline, we love to share, practice the way you play. Meaning if you know you're going to give a seated talk behind a screen and it's in a virtual environment, don't spend hours and hours and hours standing in the living room pretending like your audience is there watching you if that's not going to be the dynamic that exists. Flip it, flip it around. And if you know you're going to be giving a talk to 10 decision makers on your feet standing in a conference room, it doesn't benefit you to sit behind your desk with your laptop in front of you reading off of your notes. Because again, those are two completely different environments that you're trying to visualize. And so for the same reason a basketball player doesn't practice shooting free throws, laying in their bed with a fake ball, you got to practice the way you're going to play. And understanding the, the environment to some degree, right? We all say, and everyone hears, I don't know where I'm going to be, John. I've given this talk before, but I'm going to a new setting or a new environment. I don't know what to expect. If you can play detective and figure out what are some of the things that might be available to you or not, mm -hmm. and then visualize that environment. And then from there, you can start to visualize, okay, here's how I want to be received from this audience based on me understanding those components. And John, that's something that I put into all of my sessions as it is when we go through them. The first thing is always, I say, a swimmer doesn't go through as an Olympian and they know that they're swimming the freestyle on Monday. So the entire week leading up to it, they start swimming the breaststroke. If I know I'm speaking in person, I'm going to go in and I'm going to speak standing up while I'm rehearsing using that, those same gestures, that same posture and trying to get that to, as I called it earlier, kind of a habitual nature for myself. So I'm more focused on the content. The other piece of that that I always tell them when we go through that video recording aspect, every time that you watch yourself do anything, you're going to be your own worst critic. Yeah. Like Jacqueline said, you're going to be able to find 50 things that are wrong with yourself, but we want you to focus on those three. My big thing that I let them know is once you get to the point where you are comfortable being an audience member for yourself, as someone who is your own worst critic, your audience is going to be totally okay with how that comes off if you are okay with how that comes off. If you know you're holding yourself to a level 10 of a standard, whereas the audience is only somewhere in that seven to eight range, if you can come off as that level 10 every time to yourself, you're going to come off great to that audience as well. Yeah, yeah I, I like that too. And even as our listeners, if you think about, okay, I'm going to be giving a presentation with a PowerPoint screen in the front of the room, standing on my feet. How do I practice that in my own house if I normally work from home? We do an exercise in our virtual executive communication skills class. It's not the absolute perfect setup, but what we have participants do is either hold up their presentation in the left hand over their shoulder or put your laptop up on a countertop over your left hand shoulder. You can put your phone across from you if you want to actually practice or I'm sorry, get the review side, but stand next to that countertop, look, force yourself to look over your shoulder at your content so that it's not in front of you. Because when you get in the front of that room, again, your content will be in one place. Your audience is going to be in the opposite direction. And then you have to try and figure out how do I, how do I look back at the content and not spend my time speaking to the screen, but grab that information and still speak out to my audience. So there are lots of ways that you can get very creative 
if you know the setup, do your best to mimic that setup wherever you are. It could be in your office. It could be in your kitchen. It could be in your bedroom, wherever you happen to work and set up from. But you can mimic pretty close to that and still be able to practice how you are going to present. I love that you mentioned kitchen, Jen. Yeah. Because I, yes, I I, I absolutely think it's important to have some rehearsals where you recreate the environment. Yeah. I also think it's important to practice your presentation in a bunch of different environments. Yeah. So that you you kind of shock your brain. Because sometimes when we rehearse with the actual environment in mind, our brains habituate to that. And mm-hmm. then we walk out. And if something is different, it creates an uh moment yeah. for the speaker. So go outside. Yeah. Go out into your backyard. Try... I had a client, I'm not recommending this for everyone, but I have a client who loves to rehearse in Starbucks and she says, who cares? It's Starbucks. But, but what she'll do is, is strike up conversations with strangers Mm -hmm. and try a little bit of her presentation within the conversation. So it creates a conversational tone. So mix up different places, different environments so that you shock your brain. And then you're teaching your brain to adapt to new things, to new experiences. Yeah. And how you just think on your feet a little better. I love that. And again, the more, it's just another form of practice. The more times you go through, you talk that out loud, the more comfortable you start to get with that information. And that's really the goal of practice is getting intimate and comfortable with the information so that. I'm not trying to deliver something I just learned last week to an audience that needs to understand it when I myself don't even understand it. So the more times I go through it, I talk about it, I begin to internalize and really feel this comfort level with that information. So when I do get questions that are asked of me, I don't feel like a deer in the headlights where, shoot, I haven't rehearsed that question. I'm, it might still come out of left field. Maybe it's not something I considered, but because I'm so intimate with that information now, it's something that I can take a pause, give myself a moment to really think about and say, that's a great question. And how do I think that connects or how can I answer that based on the audience I'm speaking to and the, the lens that they're looking at this new information from? So that's a great first step for practice. Now let's add in the element of nervousness and anxiety. So even if we've practiced 15 times before we give it, there's always going to be a little bit of that stress that comes in when it's go time. What can listeners do either while they're in their practice rounds or even in the moment when it comes to some of that stress or anxiety that begins to creep in? There's pretty recent research that looks at how do people perform well under pressure. Mm -hmm. One of the things that research found, it's a simple exercise, but it works, is when performers, and they tested this on test pilots, peak performing athletes, musicians, people taking math tests, challenging math tests, When performers spend about 15 minutes writing down everything that they're worried about in that that test performance, Mm -hmm. that stress performance, they perform significantly better to just the act of, you got to write it down, the act of writing down, making a list. This is everything I'm worried about. And additionally, when 
people would spend time writing down their values. What, what do they hold dear in life? Mm-hmm. They would then perform significantly better on test pilots and, and well, the whole list that, that I mentioned. Yep. So that's a, a quick thing that you can do if, if you're feeling anxious about going in and, and giving a, a presentation. But along with that, going back to this idea of rehearsal, it's important to, to create stress and failure in yeah. rehearsal to teach your brain how to fail. And so some ways that you can do that, and I'm sure the three of you have have ways that you bring stress in with your, your clients as well. The ways that you can do that are force yourself to go through your presentation as fast as you can without missing a beat, without missing a moment. So you're going to land everything exactly as you will land on the day, only you're going to do it twice as fast. Mm-hmm. Guaranteed, you will make mistakes. And then the question is, how do you recover from that mistake? Yep. Another way you can do this is, is get yourself off of that script as fast as possible. It's extremely painful. I hate it. We all we all hate it. Yeah. Force yourself to get rid of that script. You can have someone hold the script for you if, if you like. And then if you really can't think about what what's the next thing that I need to say, just say line and that person will come in with, they won't give you the whole line. You want to ask them to give you three or four words so that you, your brain starts to work and problem solve to find that line. Yep. But then do that with the first two times that you don't have the script in hand. And then the third time, nobody is there to bail you out. So again, you're teaching your brain to recover from failure. You can never anticipate everything that can go wrong on the day of. I, I once had, I, I stepped out on stage and the minute I started speaking, this huge stage lamp fell from the ceiling, stepped out of the way immediately. Yeah. <laughs> I would not be here today. I'd be dead. <laughs> Another time I was speaking and water started to leak through the, the ceiling yeah. and we discovered that the pool was right above the ballroom and the pool was leaking. So we had to evacuate. You just can never anticipate everything that's going to happen. Right. Yep. But when you teach your brain to, to problem solve, it primes the brain for pivoting in the moment. So introduce stress, introduce failure into your rehearsals. Have you heard, are you familiar with the acronym FAIL, Jacqueline, F-A-I-L? Yeah. Fantastic attempt in learning. And I saw it and I loved it. I saw it, I don't know, six, eight months ago, but I'm sure it's been around forever. I never, I never, I had never seen it at the point. But as I hear, as I've been doing this now, you're 13 from various people across all industries. Oh, I gave this talk. It was total failure. My first question is what makes you say that? Or why do you think that? I like to frame it open-ended because I'm curious what they think first. And then the more I realize it, we expect things to go a certain way. And to your point, we also should anticipate not everything is going to go as planned and that should be expected. And if we can anticipate that ahead of time, it does give us a little bit of freedom to realize, okay, there's things that are going to be out of my control. How do I pivot? How do I stay flexible? How do I treat any of these little things as hiccups? And we tell people, look at them as speed bumps, not roadblocks, because if they become roadblocks, then you got to turn around. You're at the end of the road. And the only option is stop here. And I got to turn around 180. But if you treat them as speed bumps, 
we can all get past speed bumps. Everyone has been there before. And in the grand scheme of things, a lot of these little speed bumps or hiccups by the end of the talk are going to be non-memorable. Nobody will recall them as long as you managed getting past it in an effective manner. And what that means for everybody is going to be different, but you want to stay authentic. You want to be your genuine self. All of those things should take precedence over you feeling like, geez, this isn't the way I practiced or this isn't the way I planned. This is now a total failure. But I just, I love the acronym because going through and, and thinking about I'll use the the analogy of running. My wife and I just finished our first half marathon. And part of the training that we did over 14 weeks, I want to say it was week seven or week eight. It was take all of the training and do it in environments you're not familiar with. So instead of working on the treadmill, which would have been programmed weeks one through seven, you're going to now go out to the road. And the road is much different here in Colorado than a treadmill is. The road has a lot of hills and ups and downs. And then it was take your pace and cut off 10 seconds. And so now we're forcing ourselves to go faster than we're comfortable with, mm-hmm. understanding the pavement or the environment is now different versus a treadmill, and then figuring out at the end of that, okay, let's look at what went well based on the data. And you look at your strokes, your strides, excuse me, strides, not strokes. You look at your pacing, you look at your average heart rate, and all of these things are data points to learn from. But back to the practice piece, if you can do that and you can look at the big picture and say, okay, I know I've been here before. I know it was uncomfortable, but I can do challenging things. It is a huge win internally from a mindset shifting standpoint to say, this isn't a complete failure. It's an attempt in learning. And I learned something from it. And John, that's a great piece. I I quote that we read previously. I can't remember who exactly it was from, but instead of being practice makes perfect, practice makes permanent. So knowing that life is not innately perfect, we are not practicing to make this go off without a hitch and like Jacqueline said, there's going to be things that happen that we don't know or necessarily have not experienced before. We don't necessarily know how to get through them. But again, to our audience, they're going to see these things and say, I've never seen that happen before either. We get that spotlight effect at the front as that presenter saying, everybody's eyes are on us. Everybody's looking at us. I have to find a way to get through this. If we can practice in a way where we know that these small stressors or roadblocks, as John said, may arise, how we can get over those and make them as small as possible so that the audience doesn't notice them as much, whether it's a misspeak, a roof leak that you were talking about there, Jacqueline, if we can troubleshoot these as best as possible, that's another way we are going to be thought of as that great presenter in addition to just how we present that information. So that's just as big, like you said, John, there, yeah. Practice makes permanent instead of that practice making perfect because innately nothing really is perfect. I think that's a great point. And one of the other really simple ways, and Jacqueline talked about introducing an actual audience in front of you, maybe not the specific audience you'll present to, but having real bodies in front of you will add that level of stress we feel when we're actually on. One of the other things I always tell my clients too, don't always start at the beginning, slide one or page one of your talk and go through to the end all the way start to finish because that's how we expect things to go. But in an actual meeting, presentation, talk that we're going to give, we're probably going to get interruptions, whether it's people asking questions, something in the hallway that falls and breaks and just creates that moment of what was that or what happened and then having to jump back in. So I always tell my clients, set a timer for 10, 12, 15 minutes, whatever you have, practice whatever you can get through in that 15 minutes. Then go back, do a task that you need to get done for your day-to-day work. 
whenever you have time again, set another 15 minute timer and start from that next slide or that next point in your talk and go 15 minutes forward. Because now it's forcing you to start in the middle, pick up where you remember leaving off and that mimics somebody asks you a question in the middle of a slide or the middle of a talk, and you're not at a natural ending point or a transition point. This allows you to take that interruption, answer that question, and then look back at your content or think about where I was and how do I hop back in? How do I make this as seamless as possible where I'm not going through a whole bunch of things I've already talked about, or I didn't leave out a whole slide or a big gap of content, but that allows you to build in some of that stress. And it just throws another, I think, as John mentioned, something different in the training plan that allows you to pivot and adjust and just get more and more comfortable with that information. I love that you mentioned Jen starting midway through or, or right after the introduction. I, Thinking about the presentation as like a house Mm -hmm. and you want to try to enter that house from different entryways and then take different paths to get to your final destination. If your final destination is the master bedroom, you want to try entering through the bathroom and then going through the the living room and then the, the laundry room before you get to the master bedroom. And then the next time you want to try coming in through the side porch. So you're taking different routes every single time. There, there was a, a study, I think it was last year that Slido did. Mm-hmm. And they found that we're living in a time where audiences like to be not only engaged with our presentations, they like to be in the driver's seat. Yeah. Now, this isn't appropriate for all presentations, but what, what Slido found is that presenters who were able to say, Here, here's my topic, where would you like to start first? What, yeah. do, what do you want to, what's most important to you? And so thinking about your presentation as a house and that it doesn't matter which entrance you come into the house from. It doesn't matter which path you take. You are so familiar with that content and you're so, because you're so familiar, you're so nimble with it and being able to to pivot based on what the audience wants. Again, it depends on the presentation. If you're presenting to a senior audience, if you're presenting to executives, it can be very helpful to say, Here's here's the big picture. You tell me what's most important to you today. Yep. Yeah. What's most value add with your time? I love the analogy there, Jacqueline. I use similar Google Maps. You plug in a destination in Google Maps. It's not uncommon for Google Maps to give you three different routes. Exactly. And I tell people, play with going the three different routes. This way, depending on the, the audience or depending on your comfort level, some people look at Google Maps and they say, oh, geez, I-25 in Denver, a lot of traffic, uh, semi-trucks going 65, 70 miles an hour, not comfortable there. I'm going to add five minutes to the commute. I'm still going to get to the same destination, but I'm going to take service roads or side streets. Perfect. Or you realize, you know what, there's a whole bunch of construction over in that pocket. I'm going to take the highway today and that's going to save me a few minutes. But if you know what those options are, the destination ju- doesn't change. Yep. You're still getting to that finish line. It's just being comfortable and then willing to say, I'm going to be okay going a different direction today. I'm still getting to that destination. It might add a few minutes or it might shave off a few minutes. And then you make that determination based on 
time, based on audience, based on preferences, everything else. Now, my last question then comes down to when should somebody practice? Everybody wants to know how far in advance, how many specific times, how many days do I need to practice? And it's not as easy as saying 15 days is the magic number. That's We know that's not something that we can tell people. Some people are very good at I practice three, four, five times and and I feel great at that point. Other people, they might practice 20 times before they give it. And that's where their comfort level is. But in your opinion, how far in advance should somebody begin that practice or rehearsal? You highlighted some people say this, some people say that, and, yeah. and that's spot on. It's dependent on the person and the situation and, and, and the content. I'm getting a sense your listeners might be listening to all this and and be thinking oh my god that's a lot of work i don't have time to do this yep and here's the cool thing about everything we've been talking about today the more you do this you have to you do have to intensify your your work on the front end but yep. the more you do this the easier it becomes so that you don't have to spend so much time now so for example, if someone gives me a, a presentation and I've only got 30 minutes, because I'm my brain is practiced with this, I'm able to throw that together that is re- something that's reasonably decent pretty pretty quickly. So so rest assured that the more you exercise this muscle, the easier it becomes. But then it just depends on the the talk. I have a client who gives a two hour annual keynote address, hundreds of thousands of people wow, live and, and virtual. And it's a two hour speech. So we actually start working on that. It, it's a speech that he delivers the end of November. We start working on that in May. Yep. And he starts getting on his feet and rehearsing with it end of September. Okay. If you're giving a five minute project update, well, then you're not going to need to start working on that in May. And in fact, you won't be able to, I doubt you will have the runtime to to do that. So start to understand what you need in order to show up the way that you need to show up. If you know that you're someone who you get nervous before a presentation, then you probably want to give yourself a lot more runtime before you're standing on your feet and a lot more challenges so that you you feel really comfortable. Uh, and then again, if it's a longer presentation, then you, you probably want to give yourself more time as well. Um, I was for many years, a senior speaker coach with TEDx Seattle, and mm-hmm. I had one speaker who rehearsed 80 hours for a 16 minute talk. Oh, wow. Some people would say that's overkill, but for her, it wasn't. And she ended up, she landed on the global TED stage. Wow. So for her, that really paid off. Yep. Everyone is different. And, and so one thing that can be helpful to do is to make a list for yourself of markers, mm-hmm. almost like a dashboard. I know that I'll be ready when I know that I'll be ready when I can pivot and go in different directions, come into the house from different different points, yep. and I don't even have to think about it. Or I know that I'll be ready when I make a mistake and I'm able to recover and handle it in the moment. 
Or it might be, I know that I'll be ready when I feel a certain way, mm-hmm. or I know that I'll be ready when I get feedback from, from a trusted advisor, from my, my trusted board of advisors. So know for yourself what your markers are. Yeah. Yeah. I love that they're... It's a fun skill set, Jacqueline, because there isn't a one-size-fits-all approach. And for everybody, how long they have to practice ahead of an engagement can vary and, and can be different. I had a coach growing up playing basketball who said, fast practice, slow progress. Slow practice, fast progress, no practice, no progress. <laughs> so this idea of, oh, I'll just wing it or... Yeah, I had a rough night with the the one-year-old last night, really didn't get a lot of sleep. I don't have the time today. You have to carve out some dedicated, intentional time to practice. What that looks like can be different for all of us. And then what type of practice, as you mentioned, picking those personal markers. The person who spends 80 hours practicing or rehearsing for a 16-minute talk, that might be their bag. That's the best way for them to learn and get comfortable with the content. It's not memorization. I'm sure this individual went through and said, I don't want to be that memorized person. I want to be authentic and I want to stay my genuine self, but I need the time to rehearse and practice and run through where other people can say, John, I'm flexible. I know the content like the back of my hand. I don't want to be tied to this exact structure, knowing that things are likely going to change in the moment. So I'll practice 30 minutes a day for the next month prior to this talk. And that works perfectly for me. But it's it's a nice thing that it can differ for all of us, but identifying what works best for you, I think, really is the the key ingredient. Yeah, and I think it does differ for all of us, but Jacqueline, like you said, with the client that you were talking about there, I've never had someone tell me that I know material too well or that I knew it too much. There's never a time I went through a Q&A and I said, oh, I wish I spent less time going through this because we didn't get as many questions on it. Again. The more that you present or the more that you rehearse, rather, the better that presentation on the back end is going to be, the more likely your audience is going to be to either answer the call to action that you have at the end of that presentation, ask you questions at the end, engage with whatever it may be that you're asking them to engage with. But again, the better you know that information, the more likely you are to be able to troubleshoot some of those small roadblocks that we were talking about, or like John was saying before, to have that freedom to go through it and talk about it the way that you want to. If I know that material like the back of my hand, it doesn't matter whether I want to go through it one way or the other because I've rehearsed it enough times where no matter how I present that content, I'm able to go through what I want to talk about, how I want to talk about it, rather than staying stuck, robotic, and a bit more rigid and scripted like we do sometimes hear it. You know, Matthew and and John, you... You didn't say this, but kind of came up in what you both shared that I think is important to leave with your listeners. I see a lot of speakers who forget that there's an important component of rehearsal and that comes after you've presented, mm-hmm. after the performance, after the big day. And that's doing what whatever you want to call it, whether you want to call it a look back or a post-mortem, but spending some time reflecting on how you did. If you can get someone to video your performance, great. But even if you can't, just spending some time reflecting on what went well, what would I change? Because that's also going to inform how you rehearse the next time. Right. That's- yeah, the review process is so key, and and any type of review can be better than no review at all. 
but I like the idea of writing things down, Jacqueline. You mentioned the importance of writing down wins, writing down things you might change. Obviously, if you've got ability to have it recorded, then you can look very descriptively at what's working well for me physically, what's working well for me vocally, and not thinking so much about, hmm, that didn't go well, and I'm not sure why. It's that didn't go as well as I'd hoped. And here's why I feel that way. Or here's what the video is telling me. I tell people I worked with a group of 12 last week in person. And they said, John, I had no idea some of these things were happening until I watched the video. And I said, the beauty of video is it doesn't lie. It, yeah. it hides nothing. And as much as we may think, well, geez, I've been giving talks for years and years and I really don't use non-words or my pace is appropriate. I feel like I'm not going too quickly or my volume's always been in the right place. And then you watch or listen back and you say, oh my goodness, I had no idea um and ah came out of my mouth 15 times in a six minute talk. Or I had no idea that my pace was so quick that I was ending up fire hosing my audience. Or I didn't know my volume was at a four or five on a one to 10 scale when in reality, this group size with this type of environment and this type of room probably required more of a seven or eight. So all of those things from a review component can be helpful in understanding what's going to make the better version of me the next time through. Yeah, I think it's something that a lot of speakers forget mm. or they avoid because they don't want to watch themselves. <laughs> yeah. Sure, it's painful, right? So if we summarize what we've talked about so far today, there's really three key takeaways that I want to touch on for our listeners. First, rehearsing or practicing is something that everybody should be doing in order to be more effective at whatever your talk might be. Just like an athlete or a musician or anybody else doesn't wing a performance when you've paid hundreds of dollars to go to their concert... As the speaker, somebody coming to your meeting does not want you to get up there and wing it if you have had time to rehearse and practice ahead of time. So make sure you make that a priority. And we laid out a number of different ways that you can do that. It is not a one size fits all or that you have to do it this specific way. Number two, rehearsing is not just about reading your content in your head. Jacqueline mentioned a number of different steps that can help us prepare in the appropriate way based on the setting, the audience the information that we are delivering. So do your best to try and mimic whatever that setup is going to look like so that you can almost do a real life run through, but then also throw in some alternatives, practice in your kitchen, practice on your commute to or from the office, talk it out loud with a friend or a coworker who has five, 10 minutes that they can listen to you share some of that information. And then finally, when it comes to rehearsing, it's as Matt said, it's rare that you are doing too much. Now, again, if you are starting to memorize and you need this sentence to come out exactly the same way every single time, our recommendation is to take a step back, take a time out, walk away from it because we don't want to have that memorization. But it's very rare that you are going to be too comfortable with that information or the content you are going to deliver. And when you are comfortable with the information, it's amazing how all the rest of the things really start to fall into place. You might even find you're actually enjoying yourself while you're up there talking to an audience and interacting with them. Jacqueline, is there anything else you would like to add for our listeners? Yes. Once you've done all the rehearsing, do what a, a professor told me to do years ago in graduate school. And that's, we don't want to see you rehearsing. And we've talked about that today. Yep. So put all your rehearsal in your back pocket. It will be there for you. Trust that it will carry it, you through and then say, F it, whatever happens, happens. But yeah. I'm going to be present and in the room and deal with whatever happens. So F it, whatever happens, happens. I love that. Love that. 
And I think, again, that's a great way Matt mentioned earlier. Communications is never going to be perfect. So we have to go with the flow. We have to be flexible. We have to be able to pivot and make those changes. And at the end of the day, have fun with it. No matter the content, even serious content that, you know, you don't want to make light of it or joke about it. We can still enjoy ourselves and have fun with serious information But at the end of the day, that's what's going to get your audience engaged. That's what's going to have them walk away and say, I I have full trust in Matt and everything he has shared. He's on top of it. He knows exactly what needs to happen. We've had a couple of setbacks, but he's got it covered. And that's what we want at the end of our audience. We want them to feel confident that we know what we're talking about and we can manage or help them manage whatever we might be discussing. Yeah. I think practice should be fun. So if you can't look at yourself and smile every once in a while, then you're you're not doing it right. Exactly. Well, thank you everyone for joining. Jacqueline, thank you so much for coming on to our show. To our listeners, glad that you're back for another episode. And as always, if you have any other future topics that you would like to hear about, please don't hesitate to send us an email or respond to a social post. We'd love to talk about any content you all would like to hear more about. Thanks so much, everyone. Thanks for listening to the Speak As Well As You Think podcast brought to you by Vautier Communications. Again, I am your host, Jen Alex. Vautier Communications is in the business of business communication skills. We coach and train both individuals and groups on how to elevate their presence and increase their impact through the way they communicate, present, and write. If you want to learn more about our in-person or virtual training options, visit our website at www dot communications dot com. Thanks for listening.